The race is on, and with Ferrari becoming the first team to hit the track in 2021, albeit running a 2018 car, we're taking a close look at Charles Leclerc. Is he the real deal? How good is he? And does he make too many mistakes? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me with all the answers are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Scott, hello. Have you got round to planning what you're going to do with the extra 10 minutes you've gained this uh, this year on Grand Prix weekends? Yeah, I'm 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 going to I'm going to spend it uh, uh I'm probably going to travel actually, you know, use that extra time I get to, you know, see the world, small place, so you know, every every bit uh, adds up. No, in uh, I think it'll be useful bit of extra um bit of extra prep time in the evening, make sure the podcasts are better than ever. Um, you know, punchier filled with better answers more concise for example for this podcast here i'll um i'll wrap the podcast up in uh in a few seconds shall i yes charlotte closed the real deal how good is he very good does he make too many mistakes yes at the moment but i'm sure he'll get better yeah well that's very good you've uh, you've jumped ahead join there. us again next week for another episode of the race f1 podcast you're one of those people who jumps to the end of the book to see how it ends aren't you before you decide to continue no, but I do occasionally accidentally read the end of the page before I finish the bit that I'm on. I just, my mind, I, my eyes wander. That's all. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, we have, of course, got a little bit more meat to put on on that bone. But I'd also like to know, Mark Hughes, what you're going to do with that extra 10 minutes from the race is starting 10 minutes early. I plan to watch an extra 10 minutes of driver on board footage from the race to try and glean what's been going on. That's that's my plan for it. I'm just going to save it. I'm just going to save them. So, um, you know, if we get... If we're lucky enough to get twenty races, um, that's two hundred minutes. I don't know. I, I, I can do something with them at the end of the season. That's a very, very good idea. I like that planning ahead. Give you, give yourself an early night in Abu Dhabi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I, I've got a different uh, answer to Scott for uh, question three. So um, that that that's good. So that means we've got something to talk about. Uh, questions one and two are the same. Uh, question, question three. No, my answer is different. So that's okay. We've got a nice narrative structure there. We've got a little bit of conflict, so there's going to be some disagreements. There's potential for all of us to go through a good journey as characters, and it'll all start off nicely, and then we'll throw in a little bit of peril. So I like this. This is a, this is a good narrative uh, narrative structure. But we're gonna we're gonna dispense with that immediately and go slightly off piste just before we delve into Charles Leclerc, because we should talk about his new teammate, Carlos Sainz. He had his first test in F1 Ferrari at Fiorano last week, one of half a dozen drivers in action, with Leclerc himself also getting a bit of mileage to sharpen up ahead of pre-season testing. Mick Schumacher, Robert Schwartzman, Marcus Armstrong, and outgoing academy driver Giuliano Alessi also had runs, but Sainz is the one we're interested in. So what did you glean from his day and a half of running, Scott? Uh, mainly a, a, an indication of how Carlos is going to be attacking or is already attacking this Ferrari opportunity because obviously the, there's, so, there's so limited, if anything, to be gained from the 2018 car itself from a performance point of view. Like what it's, it, it predates the aero change in 2019. So he's going to... I'll be amazed if he learned anything about actually how Ferrari cars work in terms of performance. But in terms of... Um, processes uh, systems personnel that would have been really useful because he's been in Maranello uh, I understand he's been in uh, he's been a model student at Maranello through January so far uh, plenty of time on the simulator he's been doing his homework but actually operating the steering wheel operating in a Ferrari environment communicating with his new engineers in a racing situation or at least an on-track situation 
which is what he would have been able to practice at Fiorano. That is different to doing it in a controlled environment, uh, whether that's in the factory, just talking to one another, or especially on the simulator. So, so I think that I think that Carlos has gained quite a lot from this day and a half. He says that there's um, there's quite a lot of detail that he's picked up that's going to be beneficial. It's all about fast tracking the learning process. There's only three days of preseason testing this year in the 2021 cars, which means a day and a half for Carlos. Um, and it's just very similar to what we've heard from Fernando Alonso driving the, the 2018 Renault last year. Um, and then obviously Fernando got to drive the 2020 car. We won't revisit that little controversy here uh, in Abu Dhabi. But um, basically, it's that level of uh, fine margins and marginal gains that Sainz is, is pursuing. And if you're chasing the same kind of thing as Fernando Alonso, then your um, your processes can't be far wrong, can they? I also noticed, Mark, you, I think you retweeted or commented on a social media post that Carlos had been going out of his way to be friendly yeah. to a few gathered Ferrari yeah, fans. Yeah. There was a lovely little tweet on there that um, some fan had been down at Ferrano, said there were about seven of us clinging onto the fence all day, just watching them go round and round. And, uh, and at the end of the day, you know, they were packing up and there was a, like a little small um, fire truck came came along the track and they were wondering what was happening and then it stopped just in front of them and out stepped Carlos and come to have a chat with them and they'd been there all day so it was um yeah just a nice little it's sort of just just the way Carlos is he's a he's a, he's a lovely lovely guy and he's very warm and um he's he's gonna he's gonna go down an absolute storm with the uh Tifosi. and so uh yeah I think I, I don't I don't think that was just him um ingratiating himself i think it is just his natural way he just he'll have seen them he's thinking they're still there after all this time uh, i can just just going to say thank you afterwards really it's just just nice i assume that was the same group of fans that he'd uh or the same small group of fans that he'd noticed at the very start of the day because he said that on his um basically right at the very beginning he noticed there were a couple of banners uh, being held trackside one that said um i think one said vamos carlos and the other one uh had smooth operator on it which obviously is a reference to his uh radio sing-along joke at, at mclaren um so yeah as as mark said didn't go unnoticed uh from 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 carlos it's just i think a lot of i think a lot of the drivers would notice that sort of thing trackside i think precious few would do what he did and actually go over and have a go so he's he's properly emotionally invested in in Ferrari, he had his dad there at the test as well, Carlos Senior, which shows that um, you know just because he's in this new environment and he's stepping up and he's a bigger and better driver than ever, Junior's not going to separate himself from uh, the support group that he had before. So yeah, this it, it was really interesting actually. As far as a day and a half test in an old car goes, I think we learned actually quite a lot about about, about Carlos. Not necessarily sort of much that's strikingly new but more of a reinforcement of the values and qualities that make him a a, a, a good, a very good driver. And as, as Mark said, just a, a decent person as well. I hope Carlos Senior was able to give him a few tips from his Formula Ford racing days. I'm sure that's what he was there for, to, uh, to offer some insight. <laughs> I talked uh, to Carlos Senior about his um, Formula Ford festival, and he, uh, he said it was all so new to him because he'd been... Um, He'd been rallying, um, but he'd got a budget to go and do the Formula Ford Festival. And um, it was also new to him that um, he couldn't understand why the brake lights, because it was a wet session, so people had their the lights on. And he said, um, he, he came back in, he, he thought that uh, the brake lights 
where people had wired them up to, to to keep them on all the time, just to so that he couldn't work out where where they were breaking. And somebody pointed out to him that they weren't they they weren't brake lights. That's that's how Roy <laughs> Senior was at that point. The, the, we, we're going. Uh, we're obviously going massively uh, off piece. But I, yeah, I heard a I heard a brilliant junior and senior story the other day, which is from when um, I think when Carlos would uh, junior would have been about maybe fifteen, and he went uh, to a like an ice driving like snow driving course at some somewhere in in in, in Scandinavia, um, and uh, the, so they were driving. I think it was I think it was the day was with Porsche, so 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 they were driving quite nice cars out on the out, out on the snow and ice, and had this little course made up, and uh, they both they both took part. But then senior, you know, went inside, was enjoying warming up some coffee, whatever. Junior just kept pounding around, pounding around, pounding around. And eventually got to the point where he was matching or very close to matching seniors' times, and then uh, senior noticed. And at this point, they were still very, very much competitive. So uh, senior was having none of it and told them to run the track the other way around. <laughs> so then they had to set their times again, and apparently junior got nowhere near him. <laughs> I think it was Carlos's karting experience meant that you know learning a track was he was able to get sort of quite close to his dad. And then actually when it came to, no, start again, because Senior was apparently like, this is what rallying's really like. <laughs> like to see a bit of intergenerational competition. That's a, that's, a, that's a good story. Just finally on science, I do like it. Whenever we have these drivers moving in to teams and it's all sweetness and light and positivity, isn't it? It's always quite funny. I'm not saying it's going to end this way because I think science at Ferrari will go well. But it is interesting, isn't it, that when drivers first go and everyone's very excited, it's a great new exciting mm. relationship. And then you sort of think, back to the past of how certain partnerships ended and <laughs> you know some end very amicably no reason why this one won't but there's always going to be a few that start brilliantly and then uh, and then go downhill but at this sort of stage it's all it's all looking very good but uh, anyway that's just a thought that struck me let's let's get on to the uh, the main topic today get back uh, get back onto the narrative course Charles Leclerc uh, the main reason for this is that in our discussion about the top 10 drivers last year it was Leclerc in third place who seemed to get the most pushback from people based on the comments we got so we're going to break down his game into its component parts to try and get a deeper understanding of his strengths and weaknesses so let's start out Mark with what is the bedrock of any Grand Prix drivers game which is how quick is Leclerc we're talking here about the underlying pace so in particular qualifying pace that raw speed he's stunningly fast um he might be the fastest driver on the grid um he, it might be lewis hamilton it might be max verstappen um i i don't think you could definitely say one of those is quicker than um the other two it would just depend upon the day and the circumstances but he's one of the three guys i would say that is capable of being the absolute outright quickest over a lap and um some of his performances last year in a less than great car were mind-blowing in qualifying i'm thinking of um probably probably the best example was portimao but um magello uh silverstone he, he several times several times it was a car that on merit was probably up a q2 he stuck on the second or third row of the grid and he not only got through uh Q2 when he shouldn't have done. He once even managed, I think it was Portimao, he managed to do it on the medium tyre, which was a risk that re even Red Bull didn't think was worth taking because it was too marginal. He, he not only managed to, to get through Q2 in a car that couldn't do it, he did it on the um, the slower tyre and therefore give himself half a chance of having a good race. And uh, went on to finish fourth in that race. Um, 
So yeah, he's. I don't think there's any question that he's um, of his raw one lap pace. It's just amazing, and it's he's the, he's a very attacking sort of driver, and and this goes out into a wider point as his whole quality, not just his speed. But when you're in com- compromised competitive circumstances, and you've got a car that's not a stellar car, and you you. you can throw caution to the wind if you're good enough to to be able to pull something out of the bag that is transcends its 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 notional level if you like but there comes with that a concomitant risk that you know it can go wrong um so i don't think we, when somebody that pulls off things like he did last year gets a, a car that that poor that high up the grid I don't think you can then criticize the errors because that's just part and parcel of getting a, a, a mediocre car into positions it doesn't deserve. Um, for every three times you'll do that, you'll put it in the wall another time. That's that, But that you can't count that as a mistake. That would be a mistake if you were in a pull position contending car and every every fourth time you you made an error but that's not the same thing that's a completely you're, you're trying to do a completely different task to uh, than you than you are in trying to put a competitive car on pole position you're just trying to transcend that car by as much as you possibly can and then just on the off chance to to get a result that it doesn't deserve and i think this is um this is what what we saw last year uh prior to that the the seasons prior to that, like the the the, the qualifying shunt and Baku uh, in twenty nineteen, they things like that were more. I, I think you could put more down to inexperience and just building up the data banks. But um, the the sort of things we saw last year were, were just um, trying to put a car that didn't deserve to be where it was and try to keep it there. Um, so I, I think. If we see a good Ferrari this year or a half half decent Ferrari this year, I don't think you'll see the same thing. Um, so yeah, and I think in terms of his speed, another little indication of his speed in his rookie year at Baku, uh, twenty eighteen in the Sauber, there was a point in that race where he was snapping at the heels of uh, Raikkonen's Ferrari and lapping about a second and a half faster than his teammate and. That car several times in the second half of that year in particular was was fighting out best of the rest for Class B. It was fighting with Renaults and McLarens, and there's no way. It wasn't as good as they, those cars. And the team didn't believe it was as good as those cars, and the subsequent performance of the uh, Sauber Alpha team suggests that there was nothing special about that car. There was a big aerodynamic shortfall of that car, um, which they still haven't fully recovered from, and it, it, it began in, with the new regs of 2017. And yet, there he was doing what he was doing. He was, um, I, th- I think, he is. Uh, in terms of his peak, his peak stuff, the the the, the fastest stuff. I think um, he, he's he's astonishing. I think uh, if we ever get to see him in a full season, um, alongside Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton and equally competitive cars, I think uh, we're we're going to have one of the most exciting seasons we've ever seen. Interlagos Q2 in 2018 was a really memorable one as well in the in the Sauber. Mm. Remember when there was a bit of rain about and everyone else had pretty much accepted they couldn't improve and he managed to get himself into into Q3 with a with a mega lap and the Singapore pole lap the year after as well. 
that's a, yeah. a proper live wire on the edge lap two or three really sort of big moments in between the walls with the rear being out I, i'm probably a, t- a tiny bit less forgiving than you on on the mistakes because i think the measure of the of the great drivers is that they can live on that knife edge with a, a low strike rate of errors leclerc was a little bit high on that for me last year but i do also accept Broadly, your points. So I'm all just sort of a little bit away from your position, but not quite, uh, not quite as far as completely disagreeing. Because, yeah, you're right in that he was trying to reach in for those impossible performances when you're on that kind of knife edge peak of potential. What I'm taking from that is that Ed thinks Mark's an idiot. Oh, I think that still, <laughs> but just on, on that point, I'm, uh, I'm not completely the opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think there's a middle ground really to op- occupy between your positions there, because I think you are basically like one tiny iteration removed from <laughs> from one another on where Charles' mistakes were. The, the thing that impresses me with his speed is that how he has learned to, uh, to how he has learned to extract that when required in qualifying. Obviously, I feel like it wasn't really possible to judge that last year because of um, because of just how just maverick some of those laps were in Q3 that wasn't a case of oh yeah the Ferrari can definitely do that lap time so Leclerc just needs to build up to it through Q1 Q2 Q3 he sort of you look at how many times Sebastian Vettel failed to get through to Q3 in that Ferrari and Leclerc was able to pull it out the bag but when the car is was competitive in 2020 when when it was good enough to be a you know you knew that was a Q3 car and then it was a case of right where can he get in the mix for that sort of class B fight but then if you look back to 2019 as well, and his first year at Ferrari after getting out of the midfield battle at Sauber, the thing that's really impressive with Leclerc is how he has stopped being how he's stopped being vulnerable to a Q2 elimination, or when the car's quick enough, not a Q2 elimination, but a lower Q3 result. Because at Sauber, what he found in his rookie season was he was obviously so on the limit the whole way through qualifying that there might be a small mistake here or there, but he found himself back absolutely on the limit every time he went out and did a lap in in qualifying. He was always trying to optimise that specific moment. And sometimes that manifested itself in a brilliant qualifying result, and sometimes it manifested itself in Leclerc actually not doing better in the next segment than he had done in the segment he'd just qualified from. And when he went into 2019 with Ferrari, that was one of the big weaknesses was he had one of the worst records in terms of um, his qualifying laps versus his theoretical bests from a, from a session. And through 20, the first part of 2019, I think, it was a, I think it was especially after... Do you remember Canada 2019? Vettel did that pole lap and I think Leclerc just wasn't on Seb's level that, that weekend. From then on, I think... Charles realised that it was Q3 was the goal and it was getting everything right for that lap in Q3 and it was a very subtle change but it just meant that he's and he's talked about this before if there's a compromise to be had in Q1 because you're anticipating the track evolution through Q1, Q2 and Q3 he was willing to make that he was willing to accept that compromise it wasn't about it's a little bit of the Max Verstappen in sort of 2017, 2018. It's not about being the quickest in every session. It's about doing what you need to do to get to the end point. And I think this has now manifested itself in just Leclerc being just such an ultra-dependable qualifying uh, asset. I don't really... 
I don't have any doubt now about Leclerc going into a qualifying session and getting the most out of the car. And obviously in the first half of his first Ferrari season, that was obviously very much still there because he was still very inexperienced. I feel like now, not only is he prodigiously quick and capable of these crazy laps, he's 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 being able he's rationalizing it and he's actually he is putting everything into place to allow that lap to happen so it, it it almost seems like the these laps come out of nowhere and actually Leclerc is subtly putting the building blocks in place to make it possible yeah I think that the point you make about the really focusing on the significance of Q3 particularly when you're a driver expecting to battle at the front that's absolutely critical sometimes people ask us why we put so much emphasis on qualifying pace but the days where you can qualify 14th and have a good race set up and come through they've gone you can only do that in exceptional circumstances or outside of your control usually so that is lap zero of the race and it sets you up for the race that, that is to come which is why it's so important and why this fundamental pace is, is so significant if we just evolve in our discussion into racecraft because this does touch on on the question of, of errors so racecraft scott we're looking at as delivering that speed over race distances consistency tire management and there is this question of the mistakes because the five big errors he made last year, there were three of them on the opening lap. Uh, so that was Styria, the collision with with Vettel, clobbering Lance Stroll at Sochi and harpooning uh, Sergio Perez and Sakir. Obviously, Perez went on to win in that one. So in a way, he gave him a bit of a helping hand and put him on the right right strategy in a, in a very uh, tangential way. And then, of course, there was the crash at Monza when he lost it at the Parabolica. And there was also the mistake he made at the last lap at Turkey, dropping from second to, to fourth. So we're talking here about not so much the mistakes made trying to deliver an on-the-edge qualifying lap, but particularly on a first lap of a race or trying to hold an advantageous position like Monza, he was up the order higher than he should have been because of the timing of, of, of uh, the yellow flag, the, the caution period, because of course he caused the, the red flag. So Scott, how do you balance all of those things up in the Leclerc equation? Uh, well, the first thing I would say is that when we're talking about a lot of these errors, we're talking about really, really small misjudgments that have big consequences. So it's not that he is this chaotic driver or a driver who lives on the edge and spills over it dramatically. I think there's a. it's obviously far less uh, sort of dense a spread of of incidents but it's a, I think it's a little bit like where Verstappen was at the start of 2018 but for different reasons Verstappen in the start of 2018 I think was just I think he was just a bit careless a bit a bit rash I think Leclerc's more sort of just just tiny tiny misjudgments call it a little bit of inexperience what or or if it's just sort of the specific nature of the of the situation but it is it's really small mistakes that have big big consequences I don't think that Leclerc has a trait of making errors and in fact I don't think I've I've, I might be wrong there might have been one or two at the end of last year but I've said this a lot I'm adamant he doesn't make the same mistake twice he's really good at learning from from his errors so if you look at if you look at the a couple of the examples that you gave from last year the one at Turkey is obviously one that really hurt him he had that really emotional outburst after the race, and we'll obviously get to the mental side of his game in a bit. But that was, be- but that was because of the result that it cost. The actual mistake itself, which was just, get- just overtaking someone, 
uh, who was then faster than you in a straight line, trying to cover them off into the only the last overtaking spot of the Grand Prix on worn tires, where offline it was damp. Like that's a completely understandable mistake to make. It is still a it is still a mistake, but not it's not in. I don't think it's a bad error. So I thought he was actually quite harsh harsh on himself there, especially because everything that preceded that error that cost him that podium was indicative of someone with tremendously good racecraft. His Turkish Grand Prix was magnificent. The way, especially once he sort of worked through the early stages and sort of got into a position where the tyre temperature was there and he had the confidence, he was absolutely brilliant in that in that race. So that's that's more indicative of of Leclerc's racecraft. I think those I think the mistakes are exactly as I've said before, just really small ones. Like um the start of the Japanese Grand Prix in twenty nineteen where he collided with Max Verstappen. It all that was was carrying a, a, a slight tiny misjudgment into turn one and not and not quite expecting the front to wash out as much as it did, having a tiny bit of understeer between the two corners and then clipping Verstappen and obviously um paying the price for it. But how many times have we seen an error like that? That's not that's not again, that's not indicative of a driver who's out of control. And that is the difference between when Leclerc occasionally makes these high profile errors or misjudgments versus say a sequence of mistakes like we saw from Verstappen at the start of 2018 similar sort of outcome similar in terms of it being small things that have big consequences but different levels of whether it's outs because a driver's out of control and whether a driver is just making a tiny tiny misjudgment that they will then learn from and not repeat in the future yeah I think it's um I think it's just an extension of the same thing we were talking about in qualifying. I think, um, you know, he's trying to do things um, and, and grab results that, um, that 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 it's not the car's natural position. So, yeah, obviously, it's not always going to work. Um, so if you take that Turkey incident on the last lap, yeah, he could have just sat behind, behind Perez and finished third. Um, is Is that better? It's a better result, but is that better than trying to get second and just not quite managing it on a really, really marginal manoeuvre because that's the only possible way that he might get second and finishing fourth? I would argue I'd rather see the driver try for the second place than just sit there and accept the third. I think that's a better racing driver in the round. On that day, it worked against him, but I think that attitude when he gets the proper equipment will serve them better than the type of attitude that would have just sat, sat them there in third place. And I think that's what I mean by you've got to look at it in the round. It's it's not, you can't just isolate and say too many errors. You've got to say, what were the circumstances in which those errors were made? What were the competitive circumstances? And what was the, what was the thought process and the attitude behind them? And how will that all translate when you give them the car that um, you should have? And so... Yeah, I, I don't look at, on those as, yes, they're misjudgments, but they're misjudgments that he forced himself, he put himself in a position where he had to make those judgments, where he, whereas he could have just not, not have done that and just settled for something less. And I don't think that's, um, that, I, personally, I don't think that's a better racing driver. I think that's a, a worse racing driver that would make that decision. That's true, but in the Turkey situation, the best racing driver is the one who pulls off the move for second. But it may not have been possible to do it. it that it, might it literally have been an impossible manoeuvre to do. And it's so on the edge that you can't tell in advance. You, sometimes you can. Sometimes it's obvious it's going to work. And sometimes it's obvious it's not. When it's obvious it's not, you don't do it. Um, 
and when it's obvious you can, you do. But sometimes when it's marginal and there is a result there to be had, if you can pull it off, then the the the, the top driver should the top driver should always go for it. And and I think the point that I was trying to make before about not making the same mistake twice. And I think that is an extension of racecraft because it means that if Leclerc finds himself in a situation to get that situation again, who knows, maybe he goes into that final corner thing. If he's got ahead of Perez, but Perez is coming back at him, maybe he just sticks on the racing line next time. I would back, back him to do that rather than, and, and make Perez go offline onto the damp stuff. It's easy. It's really easy to say in hindsight, I can't believe he went offline. That's really bad driving because it was damp there. But there was an element of grip even on the damp stuff because they were still on, on intermediate tyres. So I think we're picking, we're we're we're, we're hand picking a few very specific examples, uh, r- quite rightly because they are high profile high profile examples. But very few of them, like for example the the Austria clash with uh, this in the Styrian Grand Prix with with Vettel, like that that's not um, that to me isn't. Uh, Leclerc, ah, oh, you know, or t- tiny misjudgment when he's trying to do something that, yeah, I, I agree, he should be doing. I think he was wrong there, but it, but he then immediately afterwards accepted full responsibility for it. He's able to look at those honest mistakes and accept them as honest mistakes. And I have been racking my brains while we've been talking about this, trying to think of symmetries between his mis- between his errors. And the closest I can find is the Sakir Grand Prix one versus japan 2019 but there's a a, even then there is a very big difference between running trying to run wheel to wheel or almost side by side or you know just on the inside of someone through a fast sweeping corner into a tight one as it is at turn one and two at japan at suzuka versus the situation in bahrain where you've got two three four cars dicing going into a heavy braking zone and him thinking he would be able to get away with it on the inside and just making a, a, a misjudgment that they're the only two incidents that I see as even remotely being a repeat mistake, but I'm not sure that's making the same mistake twice anyway. Well, there's no two incidents are usually the same. There's always different, even ones that look much more similar than that. Uh, the the only thing, the only reason I think just have to be aware of these is that we're talking about a driver who could be the absolute number one in Formula One here. So the standards obviously ridiculously sky high. So when it comes to you know, potential world champion driver, you're looking for a driver who can get everything right every time. And I don't have massive concerns on the clerk on this, but I'd just like to I just like to see it all play out in a proper championship fight to make sure those those errors don't happen. I suspect it'll be fine because I, I do broadly agree that he's not some uncontrolled missile. But equally it's important to address those uh those questions and and whether whether that's a fundamental problem. I I don't think it is. Yeah, no, I I, I completely agree, but just to you know, picking up on something that um, that Mark was saying before, it's like that it's a different situation if you don't have that sort of car that's reliably running at the front. I'm I'm pretty confident that Leclerc is now in a position with experience, with the mistakes that he has made and what he's learned from them. That if he got, let's say, if if he was faced with the situation Verstappen was faced with last year. I think Leclerc is capable of that level of consistency, of that level of execution, of that level of not making a mistake, having a bit better judgment, having a bit better patience when necessary and threading it all together. I just think the situation that we've seen him in over the last couple of years, one was in his first year driving for a top team and only a second in F1. And then the other, last year, 
is in a position where Ferrari is massively on the back foot and he's having to pull out heroics to, to, to get results. And I think that this is shaping him into a driver who, yes, has made errors, small or large, whatever you, however you want to describe them. But I'm, pr- I'm, I'm honestly so convinced that if he was given a better car, we wouldn't see him. Well, we've, we've, we've talked in terms of racecraft. We've talked just about his um, errors. If you look at um, first race of the season where he finished second, that was a midfield car, and he's running for a large portion of the race in midfield, about where it should have been. And then you got uh, opportunities under the safety car, and he had to basically had a very very few laps left in which to get through that midfield pack. And he just did it clinically. He just got himself, just nailed the McLarens, nailed the Renaults, just straight up there and was in, in second place. And it was absolutely uh, way beyond where the car should have been. And that that went perfectly. And he's, there were several races last year where that car could not have um, finished any higher and shouldn't have finished as high as it did. Uh, Portugal being another one. Yeah, I'd agree with that. There's so many races like that. Turkey was mentioned. That drive there was prior to the last few corners, absolutely brilliant. I would argue that up until then, it was probably better than Hamilton's drive to win, if you look at Leclerc's pace, because although Vettel was up there, he made up eight places on the first lap, thanks to picking his way through. Leclerc didn't gain those places. He had to kind of pace his way to it. He was comfortably quicker than Vettel. And also, on speed and racecraft, Leclerc has basically destroyed Sebastian Vettel as a Ferrari driver. It's it's that level of performance that has led to a four-time world champion being dropped even before last season's heroics. So I think that pretty much answers the the question. Should we move on to the next category, which is technical ability, Mark? Fourth season, 23 years old, not the most experienced on the grid, but how strong is this aspect of his game? Um, it's building, and it was it was a weakness at first, as I think you'd be the first to admit. Um, it was the building blocks were in place, probably his first Ferrari season. Um, but just needed to be refined. And it's a very difficult to really to call it on last last year's performance because of the, the shortfalls of the car. So um, I'm, I see no reason why it shouldn't be uh, the, the finished article now. Um, but let, let's see. I think um, his initial, when he initially came into F1, he was trying to um, set it up like a, a Formula 2 car and it was just way, way too oversteering tailly. Um, to keep sustained pace and to keep the tyres in shape. It was very quick over a lap, but um, that was um, sort of engineered out of him. And he made genuine progress from there. And I think by the time he arrived uh, at Ferrari, beginning of 19, there were just, as Scott was talking about earlier, there were some refinements to be made on um, where you place the the, the effort in terms of, of track evolution, because to go from a, a a car where you pretty much have to be on the limit because you you're not going to make make it out of Q1 um or Q2 every time you get in the car um to one where you don't need to do that i think that took a little while from to um to get his head around and, and to, to you know intrinsically just just automatically do it um but in terms of what he's asking from the car i i think the problem with last year's car, aside from the power shortfall, was it, it was un, just lacked rear stability. And he was able to drive around that brilliantly. So trying to assess a driver's technical ability when he's driving around a fundamental problem with the car is difficult. Uh, 
that's why I, I sort of reserve judgment on that a little bit. I'd like to see how he engineers his car throughout a weekend in a, a car that doesn't have any fundamental flaws. Yeah, I I think that Leclerc sort of had to go for a little bit of a uh, baptism of fire when he joined F1 to re- basically accept that he didn't know best. And that wasn't necessarily him being arrogant. I think it was just just that enthusiasm combined with the fact that he'd been so successful in, in previous formula that I think he was just quite determined to try stuff. And sometimes that wasn't just technical. I think it was, was it Bahrain in 2018. He tried to, he basically was adamant that he should do a different strategy. And I think Marcus Ericsson came through from the back and grabbed a couple of points and Leclerc had a miserable race because he just hadn't quite, he hadn't quite got it. Um, <clears throat> and I know when he joined Ferrari, he, uh, I think he was very, very respectful of uh, the the depth of knowledge and the uh, the size of the operation. I think, you know, obviously Sauber was not a small team, but compared to Ferrari, it was. And when he was then properly immersed at Ferrari, I think he was like, okay, wow, there's like there's a lot going on here, and it's going to take me quite a while to get my head around what works. And I think I think that's where he would have found an awful amount of uh, benefit just observing Seb and just sort of leaning on Seb a little bit and I think we saw it manifest itself in his tyre management in sort of in the second half of 2019 there was an initial step there but then in 2019 I think he he felt that tyre management was a big big step and I know that sort of sort of bridges the uh the the realms of racecraft and um technical ability but I think he's going through this process of learning all the time and it's going to be, it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how that manifests itself now that he's the out-and-out team leader because he'd obviously positioned himself as the de facto team leader at Ferrari last year. That's why they wanted rid of Vettel. Uh, but there is a difference between being the guy that's trusted to lead the team on track and actually still and having all the relevant capabilities and qualities to drive the team off track as well. And someone like Sainz coming in, who has experience of different teams, he's um, you know, he's very very invested in in the off track side of the job, um, and knows a little bit about the other power units, that kind of thing. It's just going to be really interesting to see how that balance plays out. I'd like to think that in his third year with Ferrari, um, Leclerc's going to have a lot to offer, and maybe he's going to start to sort of take the lead a little bit more. The car's going to be developed more uh, uh, around him. Obviously, 2022 is a completely different car entirely. So I think the next 12 months are going to be really interesting. I think that's prob- this is probably the the category in which there is most room for evolution because this is probably the area in which he is still doing a reasonable amount of learning on the job. And we can also say that that technical ability, it's confirmed that it's evolving by the fact that Ferrari was willing to dispense with Vettel because Vettel is good on that side of things. Okay, we know he's a little bit narrow in his operating window and what he's trying to achieve, but he's a hard worker. He works closely with the team. So they were quite happy to relinquish that even before Leclerc had turned a wheel on anger last season, which again speaks volumes. And, and I always, you want to see with drivers that methodical approach, that understanding that they need to be kind of across everything. We often talk about Lewis Hamilton in these terms of how important he is, it is that he's not just quick and a good racer but he does everything off track as well leaves no stone unturned and that's something he's really learned to to do brilliantly over the years so that's what we're kind of looking for for Leclerc to to refine but I think like like Mark I do agree that 
we've yet to see that completely proven out just through circumstances of what Ferrari's offered him. You know, the driver doesn't design the car. Sometimes people say, oh, well, if he's such a good technical driver and development driver, then why was last year's Ferrari so rubbish? And it's like, well, that's that's it's not that simple. The driver has a, a minority stake in that whole thing. They can feed into what the team's doing, but if the team's producing something that's fundamentally limited, there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, he's not there to design the engine and make it more powerful or give it more rear grip just by uh, just by magic. Let's move on to the next category, which is kind of the final part of the the three main pillars, if we want to look at it as as speed, as uh, the, the the technical ability, and and then you come to mental strength. So we do hear Leclerc berating himself over the radio after mistakes. Turkey was the most uh, famous one last year. I'm sure I've, a lot of people would have heard that uh, that video. Two schools of thought on that. Some think it shows a weakness that he's lost control, but others think it reflects the high standards he set himself. Personally, I'm in the latter camp. Where are you, Scott? Um. I I think there's a third element of it, which is uh, that it's uh, it's it, it it's it can be a strength. Um, it's not necessarily just that it's indicative of high standards. I think it's a way for him to. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, I'd, I'd, for I'd argue that is a strength as well. But it's a way. For, yeah, is, it's is a, a way for him to channel it. So I th- and I think that be- becomes a strength as long as it doesn't go too far. So. We've seen this for quite a while now, um, right back to even before his F1 days, Leclerc was extremely hard on himself. You often hear drivers talk to about themselves as their biggest critics. No driver, I don't think, admonishes themselves quite like Charles Leclerc. So I think when Leclerc says he's his own biggest critic, he's 100% telling the truth there because I don't think anyone could possibly ever talk to Charles the way that he talks to himself over the radio. Um, and I think that it's uh, it's a little bit like when, you know, let's take another sport, for example, tennis, when a tennis player, you know, is is screaming after um, missing a match point or, you know, hitting it straight into the net or failing to return a serve or whatever. I've, I remember seeing this and hearing this, you know, a few years ago with Andy Murray, for example, there's always question marks over his temperament. You know, oh, he's just all he does is why does he shout and moan? It shows that he's not in control. Well, actually, that doesn't necessarily. That's not necessarily true. A driver, a sportsman, whatever they're doing, needs to have an outlet for the frustration that builds up because they're only human. It shows how much they care. It shows what they consider to be an acceptable level of performance. The only, I think the problem when it gets too far is when they get so worked up in the moment about it that they make mistakes. That's that's a problem of temperament. That's a problem of emotional control. Um, an outburst after the fact isn't necessarily linked to them being out of control in the moment. So you can be angry about something and it, that doesn't mean that that's the reason... You've got something to be angry about, if that if that makes sense. So when Leclerc does it, I think he's I think he's just venting. I think he's so, I think he I think he's so determined to get everything right. I think he's got such a good idea of what's good enough, and I think he's definitely one of those drivers, one of those people who doesn't believe that good enough is good enough. It always has to be at the highest level possible. So Turkey was because he was massively frustrated because it wasn't just that he you know he botched his. Uh, you know, his move for second place or thrown away, you know, turning third into second. He, you know, cost himself an outright podium and fallen to fourth. So 
He was massively, massively frustrated. What do you want? To, what do you want the driver to do in that situation? Radio over to the team and say, "Now nah, that's oh well, doesn't matter. We'll, you know, we'll try. We'll try another time." You know, even even the likes of Daniel Ricciardo, who's as as laid back as a deck chair sometimes in high pressure situations, he's lost control. Was it Austin or Mexico in 2018? Austin. I think didn't he like put his foot or fist through the driver's wall or his, his wall in his driver's room or something mm. like that so it, it happens all the time look at lewis hamilton having that massive outburst in russia when he felt that those penalties last year were against him and that they were unfair you know he could not let that go you know the race went away from him he was really frustrated it, it was just it's a sign of passion and it's a sign of it is a sign of work ethic and and high standards and, and all of this so i'm i'm not sure it's as simple as um as it just being a weakness or, oh, it just shows that he's got high standards. I think it's quite complicated. I think it can be a strength as long as he uses it to improve the next time. Yeah, I'd agree. It's um, it's just desire. And, uh, you know, apart from the ability to physically drive the car and a psychological makeup to control um, your, your, your passion, your ability, um, that, Desire is is just absolutely as as important as in, in in determining the 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 full package of of the driver and an, an emotion is it can be um it can be a dangerous thing in in the car it can lead to mistakes but uh, if you have proper control of it it can also be used as a driving force and uh, I think Charles is very passionate and does use emotion to drive them forward and to to fuel some of his performances and the way he stretches out himself and yeah what what when it does when when it you know when it, when he makes a mistake it's it's just a frustration that it, it, it's coming out after the after the moment and it um as i say it as scott was saying it was it's it's to do with um taking that taking that paying on board after you've released it and remembering it and funding it into your, your your next time in the car so you know i i don't see it as a weakness at all i think if you look at a few um very extreme examples but if you look at the times in which leclerc's had to handle tragedy in his life and how that has then uh, how he has then performed uh, around that I think that's an example of what level of mental strength he has. You know, as a young man to lose, first of all, his you know his mentor and one um, you know, a long-term friend in someone like Jules Bianchi. Uh, he lost his father as well. I think it was a head of the Baku F2 race, wasn't yes. it? Um, uh, and then obviously um, with uh, it was Antoine Hubert, I think as well. So uh, constantly around these things, the these events have taken an enormous mental toll on people you know you can losing one person that's close to you is hard enough losing more than that you know you i don't want any driver to have to go through that test to prove their mental resilience the fact that leclerc has gone through it three times and he's also won in incredibly high pressure situations as well like his his two wins, for example, coming under enormous pressure. And there's no more. There's no greater pressure than leading the the world champion uh, driving for Ferrari in your first Italian Grand Prix as a Ferrari driver. I don't. There, there are few fewer higher stakes moments in Grand Prix racing than that. So I think I think when it matters, Leclerc's got exactly the right temperament that you need from a Grand Prix driver. 
I'd agree completely with that. I don't think there's any point you can indicate and say that's where he's lost control or emotions got the the better of him. And the whole point, the reason why I see the high standards as such a strength is because while all the drivers on the grid have worked very hard to get there, they're very dedicated, they're operating at a very high level, there are drivers who give themselves an easy ride. Sometimes you hear them talk about it after the race. They'll say, well, yeah, yeah, that, that was about as good as we, we could have done. You think, well, actually, no, looking at that race, it's clearly obvious you could have been a couple of places higher if you'd done that right, that right. And it it frustrates me when you see the drivers who seem to kind of give themselves that that leeway. Sometimes it's just them being positive in public, but often it reflects a driver who, for whatever reason, can't quite to get to the very, very top level. You know, they're the kind of driver who will, in a season, have you know, half a dozen really strong weekends, but then there'll be other ones where they're, they're, they're not doing that because they don't drive themselves on. And as long as it doesn't become damaging that you're you're sort of pushing yourself unrealistically hard, then that's always going to help drivers. You see this in all the, the very, the very, very best. Final question mark on Leclerc. Hypothetical one, really, but it's it's taking everything we've discussed and putting it into a, into a, a made-up situation, if you like. But we haven't seen Leclerc in a world championship fight in F1. I'm sure we will one day. But how confident can we be that he'd stand up in a fight against Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen? And how big a test of that is that to come for Leclerc? It can only be conjecture, can't it, until we actually see it happen. But I've seen nothing to suggest that he wouldn't be up to that task. Nothing at all. I think he'd, he'd absolutely go toe-to-toe with either of those guys. And it would be fascinating to see. Yeah, it's interesting when you try and extrapolate drivers out. Sometimes there's cases of drivers who you expect improvements in key areas. Bottas is an interesting example because when he was at Williams, there were concerns about sometimes his feistiness on the cut and thrust of the first lap, occasionally about the tyre management. But at the time, I remember thinking that'll that'll all come. But actually, once he was in Mercedes and up against Hamilton, who's very good in those areas, it hasn't quite come. But then I look at Leclerc and I don't see quite such big question marks yes we've seen him at the front obviously with with Williams Bottas was never quite uh quite p1 although he was he was thereabouts uh in in 2014 in particular so yeah you, you don't see any little cracks to be opened it would have to be some new weaknesses I think or weaknesses that haven't been tested at all that would have to then crack under what is the absolute ultimate pressure how about you Scott this this championship in your head is, is Leclerc able to win it yeah, he is. Um, I've I've yet to see him face a situation he can't get on top of, uh, whether that is through junior categories and obviously in his F1 career so far. I think he's proven uh, from his very first uh, season in, in Formula 1 that he's capable of very special things. And every year he um, smooths out the, the remaining and very, very small rough edges, becomes a more complete driver. Um, Let's put it another way his ability and his qualities as a driver is not what's going to stop him from uh, winning a world championship in the next couple of years yeah and he'll get a chance eventually I'm, I'm sure he will just as Max Verstappen will wouldn't it, wouldn't it be brilliant if all three of those Hamilton Verstappen and Leclerc who I think you can make a very strong case of the three strongest drivers in in F1 currently obviously Daniel Ricciardo's kind of hanging on in there as a very, very high-level driver. And Fernando Alonso returning might have a little bit to say about that, but he's been on the F1 sidelines for the last couple of years. But that would just be such a a great battle to see. But I think we've probably explained why we have been so impressed by Leclerc over recent years and why we 
we had him third in our collective rankings. I think he was third in all our individual rankings when we worked them out for for last year. And who knows what he can uh, what he can do this year? Shall we round off the podcast in the traditional way that we've recently revived? Provided Scott has done some work on it, Scott's people. I think I did see some Twitter activity. Yeah, um, I have done some work on it. I've, uh, the people have spoken. Um, I've had more than 50 responses, uh, totaling about 1,500 words. Uh, I've, I've added every single one that I've had up until the point of recording to a little Google Doc. I won't be able to run through every single submission, otherwise we'll be here for we'll double the length of the podcast. Uh, but if, uh, if people need reminding, the, uh, the question I asked on the last podcast and then subsequently on, on Twitter... Um, was that if uh, if if you could basically sit down and do the the ghost writing for any racing personalities autobiography, who would it be and why? And we talked a, a bit about it, didn't we, on the 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 last uh, at the end of the last podcast? So Ed, you'll be delighted because I think you had uh, a trio of supporters for Heinz Harold Frentzen, um, uh, Ansi uh, uh, Ansi Rulamo, uh, uh, the Twitter user Air uh, Laurens, and Mark. Marcio Goncalves. I'm very bad at pronouncing these names because it's really difficult with Twitter usernames to work out where the first name ends. <laughs> but I, let's, I, I hope I've got that. So, um, uh, Ansi said that, uh, you know, Frenton, so, so much fascinating stuff. The early hype, 97 disappointment, 99 title bid, the sacking, relationship with Schumacher, his personality. Um, uh, Air Laurent said uh, it would focus on 1999. Uh, and uh, uh, Marcia said he was so angry that Ed mentioned that his choice uh, that he smacked the steering wheel of the car. Uh, but Heinz Harold Frenson would be great to get insight on how he views his talent and career, his view of Schumacher, Villeneuve, uh, Eddie, Frank, Patrick, etc. So yeah, quite a few votes for Frenson. Can, can I just interject and say if anyone wants a little bit more on Heinz Harold Frenson, Subscribe to Bring Back V10s, the current episode, Season 3, Episode 4, on the 99 French Grand Prix. Jordan Strikes Again, all about Heinz Harald Frentzen's win with Mike Gascoigne, who is, of course, Technical Director at Jordan. So there's some great insight into Frentzen there. Very good. Well done. Good plug. Uh, right, so I'll rattle through a few more, and then I might actually have to run this question again next week because there's so many. Uh, Richard Randall said, uh, Petro Denitz, uh, ridiculed, out of his depth, pointless pay driver, and then outqualified the reigning world champion at Spa. Pretty sure there's some good tales to be told there. Nicky Gray uh, opted for Graham Hill. Uh, the stories about his achievements, contemporaries, escapades and the dangers. Also because behind the cheeky grin, he seemed to be a thoughtful man. Simon M said there's probably an interesting study in mental resilience to be had with Luca Badoa, the mortal F1 driver. Um, we actually had what was what was really cool was seeing uh, the fact that there was such a range of drivers from obviously from 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 different eras. Uh, one of the interesting ones I saw was from uh, Luca Ruocco, who said Didier Peroni. Here in Italy, he's still depicted as the villain by the vast majority of fans. It'd be incredibly fascinating to ask him about his point of view regarding Imola and all the hypotheticals had he not suffered injuries at Hockenheim. How easily could have could he have won the championship? Could he have beaten PK? in 83 uh so uh, uh at ikatosh 23 picked bob fernley mainly because apparently he saw him uh on the grid walk at the australian grand prix in 2018 this is he will never forget that um from representing my new homeland of sweden bram kuhneman picked ronnie peterson 
said, if he, imagine if he hadn't passed away and been as successful as people thought he'd be, maybe a multiple world champion. How would that have altered the view on motorsport in Sweden? Would we still have a Swedish or Scandinavian Grand Prix? And Matthias Hammer added, I would actually like to hear the story about Ronnie's wife, Barbara. How was it to have your loved one race in the 70s? Uh, obviously, uh, her death, what was the actual reason for it? An interesting and tragic life. And then we had... Uh, I will finish up this run through with a couple more driver suggestions because two people, Christian Rose and Niall Boyle, picked Eddie Irvine. Christian said he'd be great. The clash with Senna, Ferrari, the 1999 season. And Niall said, abrasive driven and a terrific driver on his day. One of the last of the great F1 Mavericks for sure. And the last one that I'll include this week is from uh, at Auto Tradition, who actually messaged me twice such was the uh, determination that I wouldn't miss this picked Terry Fullerton a British karting champion in 1973 great insight on Senna and teaching karters today obviously uh, Fullerton probably gained most uh, sort of recognition or prominence because of the, uh, the 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 Senna film obviously being picked I think, that, I think that must have been the moment where Fullerton sort of became known to a slightly wider audience at least because he was picked as Senna picked him as sort of that was the great rival because he was Senna was sort of like reminiscing about the brilliance of the the karting days and the simplicity and authenticity of the of the racing right yeah he was a he was a karting rival of of Senna's so yeah that that gave him uh, a real real boost I imagine a lot of motorsport fans wouldn't have uh, recognized the name but it's relatively well known now as a result of uh, of that documentary yeah exactly so i think what i'll have to do because i don't think i even got through half of the responses that time and people were i got some really really nice answers so i, I might roll that one over to next week if, if that's okay um i know that ed you didn't have a proper answer last week frenton was just sort of a bit of a or maybe but um have you given it any any extra thought or you know might you um you never know. Might you do uh, your own autobiography? Are you that fascinated with yourself? Because obviously, as I think you saw, one of uh, our Twitter followers, Jack, said that he'd ghostwrite Ed Straw's autobiography. So, well, I did reply to I did reply to uh, to his tweet and said uh, uh, something along the lines of "Good luck with making it interesting." But I think if I was to write my own autobiography, it would be great because normally books take quite a lot of effort. But that that could be over. That's an eight nine page. Eight nine pager, isn't it? So it's, it's a uh, short story. It's, it's a sh- it's a short. It's basically, uh, your 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 autobiography is basically a haiku. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So uh, an easy task, anyway. I think there's. Uh, I think you'd have to get a lot of people's autobiographies written before mine was even uh, getting onto the shortlist. So uh, also, also, you, as a writer, you, you shouldn't need a ghostwriter, should you? You should be able to do it yourself. That's that's, that that's would, your job. That would be massive. It'd be so lazy if it was <laughs> if it was like a nine page autobiography and you're a journalist and you got someone else to do it for you. <laughs> yeah, there's there's actually a, there's actually a real art in ghostwriting, isn't there? Because I'm sure we've all done it when we've uh, sometimes when. You might get a first-person column uh, written by a, a driver or some personality. Sometimes we'll end up ghostwriting them, and it's uh, it, it's quite a challenge sometimes. And often it's quite a challenge based on who you're doing it with, because some of them are much more professional than others, should we say, in terms of, of trying to be interesting. But uh, yeah, the, the the ghostwriter's art is uh, is not a not a high-profile one by uh, by its very very nature. But uh, good for you, Scott, for popularising the the idea. So uh, yeah, well, well, thank you for everybody who. Um, who submitted a suggestion so feel free to um to continue to do so send me a 
send me a tweet. I'm at smitchellf1 on on Twitter or just use the hashtag scotspeople. Occasionally I do search for it and it does amuse me greatly when I see that there are actually tweets on there. Excellent. Well, well done for looking after your people for... Uh... For the second time in two weeks, that's an impressive, impressive strike rate for the for the off season. Thanks very much, Scott and Mark, for your insights. Hopefully, we've been able to give people a little bit of an idea of why we rate Charles Leclerc so highly. Do head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen, as I always say. Plenty to read on there. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so. And of course, bring back V10s, which I mentioned earlier. Season three of that is in full swing. And also check out our YouTube channel, just search for the race. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Race F1 podcast. <laughs>